What's really going on in the heads and hearts of the humans around you? I'm Mads Grummet, journalist, entrepreneur and startup investor. And I'm Sabina Reid, psychologist, speaker and media commentator. And this is Human Cogs, a podcast about the universal experiences that really matter and the candid conversations we need to have to share them. If you like Human Cogs, we'd love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. That way we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. Neurodiversity refers to the differences in how the brain functions and to brain variations regarding learning, sociability, mood, attention and other mental functions. According to the latest ABS data, an estimated 30 to 40% of the Australian population live with neurodiverse conditions, including ADHD, dyslexia and autism. And new data has revealed the number of prescriptions issued for ADHD has more than doubled over the last decade in Australia, with an increasing number of adults, particularly women, being diagnosed with the condition. In this conversation, we meet the quite extraordinary and inspirational Anna Oxley Rintoul, a 40-something mum juggling the joys and challenges of raising three neurodiverse kids and then being diagnosed herself with ADHD. Anna shares the complexities of navigating their daily lives and how she has worked to understand the grief and strain that come with wanting to just fit in and be so-called normal as both a parent and a child. A wealth of knowledge, resources and hope, Anna has created her own village, a social enterprise and podcast that supports parents living with neurodiverse kids. If you're an adult living with or loving someone with ADHD, there are plenty of gems in this conversation for you too. Here's our chat with Anna. Anna, we know that you are a fierce advocate for families living with diversity and neurodiverse challenges. What was it that led you to to focus on that area? Yeah, thank you. And thanks for having me. Um, Well, it was my own personal journey. Um, My one of my children was diagnosed as on the autism spectrum at seven. Um, But we had been having a lot of problems since she was about two. And we already had a child, so, um, but, you know, when you just think, all oh, kids are different, but it was hard. There was a lot of anxiety from a very early age, which didn't really make sense. And when she got diagnosed, it was really very shocking. I, I didn't understand, we didn't understand what it meant. We had no experience with any sort of neurodiverse conditions, um, but we knew that it was a lifelong thing. And so that was a shock. And I think I just realised because once you're in that world, you meet a lot of other people. And what became really clear was how much families like us are struggling because our children look like other children, but they don't behave like other children. And so, I mean, I often say, by no means do I think it's easier than potentially having a child in a wheelchair or a child that you can see there might be some challenges there. But because you walk into a room without that knowledge, it's just loaded all the time. And because people don't have a great understanding or awareness about some of these things, um, you find yourself really struggling to kind of carry on in your normal life with your normal networks and your normal families. I mean, normal's not the right word, but previous to Mm. um, that sort of Mm. happening. Or what we call neurotypical, isn't it, MTs? And I think just while we're having this conversation, that's probably a good... um, Are you comfortable with the MT? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We use that too. Mm. Because the the naming or the terminology has changed quite a bit, hasn't it, over recent years? Yeah, I think it's one of those things that there is no... Oxford Dictionary about it. I mean, there may be definitions, but in terms of what, there's not one agreed name. So some people, if you choose, if you take autism, for example, some people prefer to say, I am autistic. Some people say I have autism. And for them, they can be quite passionate about those differences. And it's, I think it's really important to just ask the person how they like to be referred to if if you're in that conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I find being able to say neurotypical and neurodivergent is helpful as sort of categories. Yeah. So in in the lead up then to your child being diagnosed at seven, what was it like in the years prior? How did you manage? It was really hard. So we had three children in four and a half years. So we, we had our third child when our oldest was four and a half. 
and then the second one was two and a half. And so I think we – and we were both working and we'd actually living in Sydney at the time so we didn't have as much support. And um, what started to happen quite quickly was that we were getting phone calls from the literally the three-year-old kinder room saying there's issues with your daughter, she's fighting with other kids, she's um, ruining other kids' work. And so we had to go and pick her up. So – even the, when you've already got that very delicate arrangement where one child's at childcare and one's at kinder and one's at school, or not even at that point, you know, that if if anything sort of sh- um, throws that balance off, you, you know, as mums, that's like a lot. And so that was just happening more and more. And we didn't know why. And that um, I think particularly with girls, um, the autism spectrum and ADHD and some of those other things, they're just not as obvious. Um, and not to say that boys can't get missed as well, but I think that possibly the DSM that was written was probably more informed by boy cases. And so girls just in some ways don't present in that way. She was very chatty. She was very social. She was funny. You know, she wasn't like lining up toys or any of those kind of things that maybe are a bit more noticeable. Um, but we had these really severe behavioural and social problems that were just kind of, you just think, what on earth do I do? I just, I have no experience with this. And at that stage, we didn't have any explanation. So we actually came home to Melbourne. We were living there for five years and we just went, we need to come home. This is actually getting really difficult. So we came home and then we put her into an ELC for another year of four-year-old, same kind of problems. And then she went into prep in a mainstream school and at the end of prep the teacher said I think you need to get her assessed and I thought they were going to say ADHD which I now know I have but I didn't know at the time but I probably thought well I've probably got that she's probably got that but when they said it was autism I didn't have a clue what that meant and so it was a real shock I was devastated actually because she'd been suffering so much Um, you know, watching your child suffer just hurts, especially when it's not like it's diabetes, take this medicine. It's still scary, but there's an answer. And so I think for someone like me who likes to solve problems, I like hard things. I was like, I I, I actually, I can't solve this. I don't actually, so of course I read a lot and whatever, but um, eventually what it turned out after three tries at mainstream school was that she needed to be in a special environment, which we moved her into in year three. And so, and in that time, I've just been like learning and learning and understanding more, but we still get calls. Even at a special school, we got calls, got to come and pick up, not coping. So yeah, our whole life was turned upside down only because of what our expectations of what we wanted that life to be. Tell us more about devastation. Mm. It's a really poignant word. Yeah. Is it still present for you now? Um, No, no. Um, But I, I work, have been working with my own psychologist for a at least five years now and there's we talk about grief a lot and that's a kind of a new concept to think about when we generally associate grief with death grief with death and it wasn't that it's grieving for something that's in front of you Hmm. and I also didn't I wasn't one of those people who had an expectation about what a gender of a child would be like you know how some people say I really want a girl I could never really understand where that was coming from because I don't think I had an expectation of what either of the children would be like but obviously I did somewhere although I don't know if it's gender I think it's more just watching your children struggle I remember when we got the diagnosis and of course being me I googled everything and you can find the most horrendous things without trying very hard on google I just remember crying hot tears Mm. of deep sadness knowing that her whole life was going to be hard Mm. seeing her so unhappy I just, I, part of my, now that I understand it's possibly an ADHD characteristic, is I feel other people's pain physically and especially when it's your child. Um, and I think probably also the devastation for me was as that slow realisation that I can't fix this. Mm. And for someone who's been quite successful at being able to fix most things, that's a massive life lesson, mm-hmm. you know, which I'm really grateful for. Really. And as a parent as well, yeah. you just want to take the pain away from your child and just cut a clear path through the forest for them. Yeah. And if you can't do that, that's so, yeah, incredibly devastating. Yeah. It? What was happening to your other two children at this time? How, how old are your kids now, Anna? So I have a 15-year-old, a 13-year-old, that's the one with um, ASD, and a 10-year-old. Mm-hmm. So my 15-year-old has inattentive ADHD and he was diagnosed at 10. So at that age when school starts to get a bit more demanding, when the expectation on you be 
self-organized and self-driven and to be able to follow instructions that's when it came along because it was inattentive and he's just a sweet creative boy sort of hadn't really come up and then our 10 year old also has combination ADHD which he's always been very very anxious social anxiety worrying walking into you know Chadston and worrying that the ceiling's going to fall down and very very debilitating social anxiety he would be you know you know, they lick their lips over and over again and they get really raw and he'd chew his T-shirt and chew his sleeve. A lot of self-soothing behaviour. Yes, mm. and um, and so he was diagnosed after I started to understand it in my older child. And my daughter also has ADHD. So mm-hmm. so you're three for three. Three for three. In ADHD. Plus me. And you. Mm. And what about your partner, their father? My partner is a very calm, I think like, you know, when they say opposites attract... Um, he's very calm. I think that was a nice match for my kind of crazy. He doesn't have any formal diagnosis of anything. Um, but what does happen when you start to become in Invocom as an expert, you do start to walk around diagnosing everyone, <laughs> you know. So I'm sure at times I've said to him, oh, you're this or you're that, you know, which he is now taking with a grain of salt. But he's very, very patient and understanding and non judgmental, And so he just takes it as it comes, mm. you know. I think a lot of NTs, the neurotypicals in the population, find it easy to dismiss uh, various neurodivergent um, labels because they can't make sense of it or because we know a lot of the characteristics that sit in this neurodiverse population are characteristics that we all have to some degree because Mm. we are talking about spectrum behaviours, not just um, autism spectrum, but all of them sit on a spectrum. So when you look at any list of criteria for assessment and diagnosis in the DSM around ADHD or autism, you can see certain um, traits that you think, oh, that's me, that's Mm. me. But, of course, we know it's around the frequency and the severity that uh, that leads us to a, to a diagnosis. Have you felt, maybe not by your partner, but by other NTs, dismissed as if, are you making this up? Yeah. Or, honestly, three children, is it really possible? And now you, you're saying of as well. Course. This is me, this is me um, pa- paraphrasing yeah. someone else. Not yeah, probably. yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the <laughs> sort of weird things about it. Because I have actually been quite high functioning in my life and because I have achieved some things that externally look like oh you're you're fine it's almost like what that can't be right but having said that most of my friends who know me when I say oh I got this diagnosis they're like oh yeah Mm -hmm, that makes sense Mm -hmm. because because I have a hyperactive type I talk fast I'm like often late I forget things you know I um I'm always sort of chasing shiny new things and that's always been me I mean I was always that you know little um kid who was probably climbing up walls but I think the girl factor meant that I could rein it in enough that it wasn't a problem so how many years ago were you diagnosed about five Mm mm-hmm and, and in the lead up to that, how were you managing, I suppose I'm interested in your life before and mm. after diagnosis and, mm. and did you have an inkling that, you know, there's something not quite right prior? Yeah, well, you know, they often say that you, you, you sort of, I've always thought there's something wrong with me, mm. but you can sort of explain that away with perfectionism and other things when, you know, you think, why can't I be as X or Y? But for me, I never connected it with ADHD because I didn't know enough about it. But I did always wonder, like I thought I was smart enough, but I did always wonder how other people could start their assignment six weeks early and chip away at it and get it done and revise it. And, you know, I, I remember walking into one of my friend's um, study areas where and she was had all of these notes out with tabs and highlights and she'd finished all the books. Like I would do that for the first chapter <laughs> and then – you know, I couldn't stick with it. So I think I did wonder, and why can other people remember to do stuff? Why am I always forgetting things? I started to tell myself that I was a bit hopeless. So I think what the good thing about getting a diagnosis early is that you can sort of get in the way of those habits and beliefs that you create about yourself earlier. And I say to my children, it's not your fault, but it is your problem. So it takes it away from being a critical kind of shame thing and more just, well, this is who you are, that's okay, but it does mean that there are expectations in the world that you have to find a way around. I like that. It's not your fault, but it is your problem. Mm -hmm. In other words, you're inviting a sense of agency and accountability, not blame. Yeah. How have you harnessed that way of thinking for yourself? 
Well, I'm much kinder to myself now. So before I was seeing my psychologist before I got my diagnosis. In fact, she sort of helped to put up the case to the psychiatrist, which is how you need to get it as an adult. But we had already been working a lot on self-love. And I think you guys have mentioned Kristen Neff in one of your recent podcasts. So she introduced me to that. And I remember it was such a foreign thing. I mean, I'm still working on it now. I'm still working on boundaries. Literally, I was like, how do you spell that? Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And that's quite a typical ADHD thing not to have very clear boundaries for a whole lot of reasons. So it helps me to direct my self-work. You know, it helps me to start to see things that I previously found really hard to manage in a different way. And, you know, progress, not perfection. It's just every day trying to adjust. How do you do do that, Anna? Like, what are some of the tools or techniques that you've come up with or or with your therapist have come up with? Well, I think that I have spent a lot of my life, and I think this is absolutely a woman issue as well, always being worried about hurting people's feelings even to the point where you're not even like I will apologize for something before I've even thought about whether or not it's a reasonable thing that may have been raised sorry 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 I'm so sorry I'm you know I'm a bad person I knew I was a bad person there's the evidence so I'm trying to and also because my brain works really fast and my patterns between thought and feelings are so well entrenched I'm just trying to slow down and sometimes it might even be something like if something comes up uh, saying something like I just need to think about that don't have to respond straight away, don't have to act straight away because that's been my default is run to action and chase after people if you think you've hurt their feelings because you don't want them to not like you, (laughs) you know. Mm. Um, There's this thing in ADHD called rejection sensitivity dysphoria which sounds ridiculous but it's so real. And what, what is that? It means that you are deeply, deeply or sometimes physically hurt by any kind of criticism. And so it means that it's really hard to be reasonable about it because sometimes some criticism or feedback is helpful. So one, when it happens in the moment, it's become such an emotional thing that you actually can't necessarily be rational about it, but you also intentionally avoid situations where you might get any kind of negative feedback. So it's Mm. actually quite debilitating and it actually holds back your ability to move forward because Mm. you need to be able to be in a place where you can evenly assess anything that comes along, work out which bit you've played a role in, which bit you want to take on and not, you know. So it distorts toward a very negative self-view and then an outcome. So what about your experience with depression and anxiety? Mm-hmm. Because often we observe or experience or diagnose those yep. and yet they're comorbidities mm. with ADHD mm. and autism and sometimes that is what leads people to a diagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. So I was at the GP with anxiety and depression before I got to the, the point about the potential brain wiring. When you've got a busy life and when something really hard happens, you just think, I'm in a hard situation. But also I think, well, I'm no wonder I'm depressed and anxious because I've got this difficult Correct. situation. But I've actually had anxiety since I can remember. I mean, mm. I see photos of, you know, me when I'm two or three, like wringing my hands and, you know, you can tell even the body language that it's actually hardwired. But I'm not depression so much. I mean, I'm actually, I think that I've thought that I was depressed because I was really sad about certain points in my life but I don't actually think that I am predisposed to to depression I think that the anxiety and those self patterns that you build up for yourself that create you know frightening situations because you don't feel safe maybe they get confused Mm. and if you're talking to yourself through a negative lens all the time well that will bring your mood down if you if you buy into that and you're juggling a busy life with three kids with their own needs and subjugating your own yes there is some correlation and we know there's been a real uptick in the number of diagnoses of adhd in recent times particularly of of adult women um, but also of kids and there is there is talk on correlation and being you'll no doubt have very um you know, good thoughts on this around the role of trauma Mm. in ADHD is, yeah, both of you, I suppose, I'm interested in in your thoughts on that. Well, I, um, at one one point, a couple of years ago now at work, we did a trauma-informed workshop. And what I learned about trauma then, there were so many light bulbs going off for me about similar experiences or similar kind of outcomes in terms of behaviour or mental health. Initially, I could see that you could get confused between those two things but often or sometimes people who 
maybe do have a um, a, a, a mental a, like a, a wiring situation that affects the way they see the world then they also can experience trauma because of that outlook so I think it probably gets a bit mixed yeah, up. Yeah it's blurred and I think an example of that and that's why I was curious about the depression piece is that if you're feeling or you were describing let's leave ADHD for a moment and even look at um, autism you're mm. talking about your daughter that if you're in a school situation even in a school which you said is a, um, a special needs school in fact maybe even more there because you think okay now I'm with my own and even and even in this environment I'm being singled out and people don't want to spend time with me and I'm not connecting socially mm. then it makes sense that there is um traumas are really a mm. really complex mm. construct to understand a lot of um, a lot of people throw the word around a bit too liberally trauma um, the way I think about trauma is not how an event not that an event has happened that is traumatic it's that your response to that event has been interpreted mm. as trauma as trauma mm. yeah. so and this is why we can see multiple people go through the same experience you mm. might ha- you might line up a hundred people who have lived through an earthquake Um, would we say that they all have a trauma response? No. Mm. They have all lived through um, a a diabolical or devastating and challenging event, but the trauma response is not seen in everyone. So I guess I'm listening to what, well, just in, in the context of this conversation, that there might be other kids who don't connect in ways that feel meaningful to them who kind of just roll with it. Mm. But for some, that will create quite a deep trauma response because they can't reach and connect. Mm. And then a compound effect of that if they're perceived negatively and then start to select out of things. There's a book um, Bessel van der Kolk Kolk wrote called um, The Body Keeps Score. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, Yeah. about trauma. Yeah, I mean, complex. And, of course, as you say, you know, there's such a large spectrum and part of the issue is the myths that perpetuate around sort of single manifestation Mm. of of ADHD Mm -hmm. or of autism. Yeah, and it's a conflation of many, many factors. Yeah, exactly. For you, Anna, um, when you made the decision for your daughter to move in year three into the, the other school, that must have been huge to mm-hmm. to, to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, what sort of supports were available to you to make that enormous decision? It is my eyes twitching now. You know, <laughs> certain things that are really have been very stressful. I actually just just put words to that. I think as people listening, <laughs> I think it's relevant to this conversation. Yeah. We just talked about the body yeah. keeps the score. Yes. In that moment, yes. your body was keeping it a was, very loud and score. I didn't think that I was distressed by that but my body was like yeah yeah uh, look I'm still um grieving in it Mm. I'm still in it this whole concept that there are no real options for children like my daughter where um they can be properly managed at school and I'm not I'm not making a judgment that it's an easy thing and it should have been done it's very complex but I think that why it took me so long to get to that point where that's what we need to do is because I felt quite strongly that this is the first step to marginalising my child outside of the mainstream. Wherever mainstream is, Mm. and then they're not they're not mixing with other kids who that so that's really taking away that integration, and I found that it's really complex because I mean actually my daughter's biggest issues are other people. Yeah. So it's also this concept, though, of separating what you want from what the child needs and potentially what they want. What do you mean by her greatest challenge is other people? That um, she has trouble with communication, so she can speak really well, so she's highly verbal and articulate, but she can't um, articulate her own feelings and she can't interpret other people's feelings. It's sort of happy, sad, angry. Even though there's other feelings going on in there, she can't really put them into words and she can't identify them and she can't do that with other people. And the other thing that is quite typical of autistic people is that they have a really hard time imagining what you're thinking, Mm. this concept of theory of mind. Mm. And if you start to really think about that, it actually impacts every interaction you have with anyone. I try not to think about it too much because it actually makes me kind of able to see how extraordinarily hard it is to be living with a brain that has those um, differences because, you know, I think the point of your podcast and this whole concept of what it is to be human Mm. and part of what it is to be human, one of the most important things is to feel included and to feel connected because otherwise our survival thing kicks off and we're like the group leaves us, we're going to die. So 
as I say, try not to think about it too much because it actually makes, like it hurts my heart very deeply to think about how her body and her um, innate sort of responses are probably responding, knowing that she's in danger because she's not in the group. Mm. Can you can you find a way into her? I'm getting there. I'm getting there. But what you have to, what I've found I've had to do is separate my own desperate need yes. to be loved <laughs> and my own desperate need to be in the group yes. because that is a one, like my core driver. And actually, it's I've been pretty successful at it. I have really good social skills, you know, notwithstanding my boundary issues that sometimes get me into a bit of trouble. But for me, connection is my number one thing and watching my child unable to do that is like but that's my experience and so I have to separate my needs and what I think you need in life and try and understand what hers are Mm -hmm. because my husband said this to me along earlier on at one point you know not everyone has to have heaps of friends Mm. I was like let's drill down because you've just said you know, I know that there'll be people listening. It's the yellow highlighter, as I call it, the yellow highlighter moment, what you just shared then. Because whether your child is on the spectrum, mm-hmm. whether they have ADHD yep. or whether they do not, yep. you've just tapped into something very powerful, very universal. Yep. And that is separating our needs as a parent from yes. our children's needs. Yeah. And not not just not living through them, but not resolving and helping and... Or needs, hopes, longing. Yes. Or we spoke about grief at the start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All the things Your grief. that you push in and onto our children, to even overlay. subconsciously. Mm. It's quite a sort of mind blowing exercise to try to unwind mm. what you think is a good life. Oh. Right? Because actually, that's what we want to do for our kids is let them find their passions, find who they are, find their identities, because that is what makes their life good. But we have to unwind ourselves for it as we guide them and talk to them and encourage them or you know discourage them to make sure that we're not trying to wire them together with ours what is your idea of a good life for you i think a good life is one where you feel safe and i think that when i'm talking about around with humans so you you have people in your life that you trust people in your life that you have their back or they have your back that you are accepted for who you are and loved for that, that you can really truly be yourself and and know that you're loved and that you can do that for others. Because it's not just what we get, it's actually if we can do that for others, that's really fulfilling as well. And for your daughter or Mm. your children? Well, that the same, I think. So maybe I am pushing that on, but I think that is more of a principle you know, that they can interpret in their own way. So they don't have to be loved in the way that I think you should be loved. They don't have to be supported in the way that I think or I want to be supported. It has to be their definitions of those things that they start to understand about themselves and then they can go out and seek it. Mm. I mean, I, I think that if those kind of goals are achievable, but they can be very distracted by a whole lot of other goals that we sort of chase. Mm. So, as, as a family with the five of you, and and four of you, I mean, you, you're yeah, incredibly articulate and insightful and, and they're very lucky, <laughs> I think, to have someone like you who's so educated uh, as well about how to embrace their differences. As a family, what does it look like when you go on holidays? I mean, two years of lockdown in Melbourne. That's, that's you and your husband, I presume, having to be with your kids. What does it look like day to day inside your household? Now my heart's racing. <laughs> Um, COVID was terrible for us. I know it was terrible for lots of people. It was terrible because we none of my kids could do homeschooling. They were their anxiety just went through the roof. They 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 didn't like the screens. They felt like overexposed. They couldn't concentrate. They couldn't do the work. So no one did anything. The ch- at one point, one of my friends who's a journalist sent some um, you know journalists over to do a story on homeschooling and. <laughs> Some of the other snippets were like parents like leaning over the table helping their child. The snippet in my home was my children playing Fortnite. They're not the snippet of them like rocking under the desk or, you know, but I think that we're still really recovering from all of that. We're still really recovering from coming back to 
and I felt completely hopeless in that time. I couldn't, you can't make someone sit down and concentrate for an hour and then do the work. You actually can't. So that was a very confronting and, and a really important lesson for me to be completely unable to do to make things the way I wanted them to be. So I'm very grateful for all of those experiences. I don't, um, I don't regret any of the hard things that we've experienced or wish them away. But to your question about what it's like in our family, so it's taken us quite a long time to adjust that we cannot do the family things that probably my husband and I grew up with. Family holidays together, disaster. Fighting, my daughter struggles with transitions, traveling, waiting around, can't find the food that she needs, gets to a new place. It's all too hard. So we have had several holidays where we, my husband and I just look at each other and we're like, what? Have, why do we keep trying to do this? Do you ever do anything, the two of you, or would you mix and match, cut and yeah, paste the we children? Yeah, do, we do a bit of like divide and conquer yeah. because we're really trying to continue to give our boys as much of an experience of being doing family things. But it's taken me a long time, but my psychologist said to me not that long ago, you know you don't have to do everything together. Yeah. And I was like, what? It was a real <laughs> revelation for me. I was so shocked and then relieved. So that within that time, we had a birthday dinner. It might have been mine, I don't know, but um, we would always try and go together and it would be awful. And so this time we said to my daughter, do you want to come? She goes, nah. I was like, great. So we went without her. And I did feel a little bit sad about that, but she was happy and we were happy and the boys had a good night. So actually that thing, the sadness is actually just about that belief that you think things are supposed to be a certain way. And I think that's what we've learned about everything. And I can't really explain how grateful I am that I got, I grew up in a home where this is what you, it was a very loving home, but it was very sort of quite clear around what thou shalt achieve. And then we all kind of lined up behind it and we all did it. Like the Von Trapps. Yeah, a little bit, (laughs) but I mean, you know, but that's because we could, we just could. But now my whole view about year 12, about what it's, you know, what you expect to be um, achieving at certain times has adjusted for all of us because what we've learned about this developmental difference is that you get there in your own time. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to take the pressure off these external kind of goals that everyone else runs up to because we've all seen as you get older, you see people get into the uni course they want and then they hate it. There's so many things that you can hit the marks and it still doesn't get you where you think you're trying to achieve. Mm. And it comes back to what does a good life or a good enough life look like mm-hmm. and, and it's not prescriptive and, and one way in I any think, case. Yeah, absolutely. But I think what is, can be still really hard on a day-to-day level is when you bring your family into a neurotypical situation, it doesn't go the way potentially that neurotypical family expect it to. Mm-hmm. And what can happen is that you end up not doing that. Mm-hmm. You mean you, you avoid? End, yeah. And then you are cut off from the And tribe. then you are isolated. Yeah. And now I have this community of parents like ours and we get together and the kids do all the horrendous things and we all just go, oh, yeah, yeah, fine, don't even blink. And then we can feel relaxed and safe and connected. And that's what I want to do for other parents. I want to create the different access points where you can come together and say the horrible things that your kids do, which you can't say to most people. And in the past when I have, the looks on the other people's faces, absolute shock and horror. The the judgment because they just don't understand. It's pretty shocking, some of the stuff. It's actually really shocking. It's antisocial, certainly in in our case. And it's actually, it is embarrassing. And you do, like, you feel... It reflects on you. Yeah. That's the fear. And also what the other, the addition to that, which I found really hard is that when my child says something hurtful, the other child's hurt. Yeah. And I can't, and then the parent's horrified. And I'm like, I actually can't, I can't keep her in a quiet room. Yeah where she can't interact with anyone. But it's a little bit like, and I hope my daughter will forgive me if she listens to this when we're older, it's like having a wild animal that you have to be responsible for because they're dangerous. And unpredictable. And unpredictable. Mm. And they're out of the social norms. And so when you can connect with other parents who've seen it at all or versions thereof, Mm. you can be relieved. Yes. And actually you feel accepted and safe and loved. And Mm. your child also feels that way. What do you say to that parent then if, if something has occurred to someone it's else's child? It's happened so many times. What, how do you use language to, to try and bridge that distance well, then? Well, I'm very grateful to say that I have probably surrounded myself mostly with people who are very open-minded and that's intentional 
and understanding. And so most of these close people know about our situation and most of them will tell me, look, this has happened. And I'll say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Is your total right? And then I will say, look, I'm going to do my best. We'll have some kind of consequence, but she actually can't help it. And they know. And I think on the occasion that someone can't cope with that, the friendship can't work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's just not fair on them and it's not fair on us. And it's as simple as that. And that's where my boundary work is coming in, Mm. (laughs) being able to understand that if the people around you can't tolerate it, Mm. you just can't be around them. And I think that's, it's hard when it's family, of course, you know, grandparents, parents-in-law, all those kind of things. But I think you have to take more control of how those situations run and you go, we'll come for an hour. Or will come with the other children. Try and set yourself up for success, yes. whatever success yep. so, for good enough is yes. what we should be setting ourselves up. And you can't yes. change the world around her. Yeah. And so how do you create a safer, smaller world yes. for her? And you have to let down some of those family members or people who, oh, what do you mean you're not coming to this family thing? It's mm. like, well, because there's going to be 50 people there and there's a band and there's mm. like, that's just terrible for my child. So the more you get to know them and understand the things that they can and can't tolerate and also the times at which they can and can't tolerate because that does vary. Mm-hmm. If you've had a bad morning, you're like, we just can't go. I mean, it's, I love that you're using the word tolerate because it's a word I use a lot. You're talking about what your child, what your daughter and perhaps your sons at times can tolerate. Yeah. But it's also what we as parents totally. can tolerate totally. with the rejection, with the judgment. Totally. Can't change it. It's, can you tolerate someone, you know? Yes. And... And that's where I think that's amazing growth, that you can live a life where you can let go of that thing that you used to care so much about. It's freeing, it's um, energising, and it's really hopeful because you don't have to think, oh, I've got to keep going through that again and again. You know, you can sort of start to determine a bit more agency around what situations you put yourself in who you surround yourself with and that's amazing and it's on your own terms what is it comparison is the thief of joy you can create your own joy the the difficulties and complexities are, are, are very real as you speak about what's the other side of the shadow are there some superpowers are there some amazing things that you notice in in your kids or particularly your daughter because yeah. of it i think i find that one always um a bit hard because i know sometimes some children or people on the spectrum are geniuses at something and they've got this like amazing skill at something i'll tell you what the strengths are and this might sound a little bit um unexpected because her strengths are deep compassion for other people. Beautiful. That doesn't mean that she can understand what you're saying or she can imagine how you feel if I say something mean. But if someone's sick or someone's unwell or someone's old, she is there. She came into the hospital with my mum who was going to see my great uncle who was unwell in the hospital. In she went as an eight-year-old. She held his hand. She didn't even know him. She sat there chatting. She brought this unbelievable love because she meant it and she didn't have any sort of preconceptions about whether or not that's what a kid does. She's amazing with babies. She's amazing with um, other children with more severe disabilities. So she goes on a lot of camps and does activities with a mixed group of kids with different disabilities. So she's around lots of different kinds of disabilities. She is. I can see her working in a special needs school. I can see her working um, as a, she's, we've got a dog that we've got two dogs, but one of them we're training up to be her assistance dog. And I can see her going into old people's homes and bringing company to lonely people. Just that to me, I'm like, that is amazing because most kids wouldn't want to do that. Maybe they do it by the time they're volunteering when they're 60 and they're like, oh, it's time to give back. But she has got She's very charming and she's funny and she can be very, very, very sweet. So if she can bring that into an environment where she's not going to be judged, like an old person's home, they're going to be so happy to have a young person come in with a beautiful dog and hang out with them and talk, which she can absolutely do. She can communicate much better with people different ages, not her Mm -hmm. peers. Babies, children with disabilities, she's amazing. So I think that lived experience of knowing how it feels to be lonely, to be different, to be misunderstood. She can use that and bring it to really connect with other people because that's that connection, that human connection thing, to be understood not by sympathy. Oh, that must be hard. I feel for you. I know what that feels like and I can sit with you in that. Mm. She can bring that. Mm. I think that's amazing. So do I. Yeah. I think you've just... Express that in the most beautiful and heartfelt way, human to human, mm-hmm. mother to child. Yes. Mm. Yeah. 
powerful, isn't it? Yeah. 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 You also, Anna, um, you have started, is it, you're the founder of Takes a Village? Yes. Tell us about Takes a Village. So Takes a Village was my way of saying we need to find each other. Those few families that I found along the way where we started our own little village, where we we didn't live near it by necessarily, but we would check in on each other for things that others wouldn't even know about. So, oh, new school, oh, my God, how's it going? You know, not, oh, great new school, good luck, you know. And that community that I have now built around me, I've been saying to them, we need to, this has to be, more people have to be able to access each other in this way not necessarily us but they need to find each other so they can get together and share that share those someone knows to ring when the school teachers on you know having a sub day because that's a disaster for our kids so someone who's and other people around you who you can lean into especially if parents are a bit further ahead on the path and we can say oh, you are in the worst phase right now. This is the worst. I promise you it gets better. You can only hear that from someone who's lived it, Mm. you know. And so I have created this organisation where really initially it was just to try and create community online, to try and bring people to at least to be able to connect in that way and also to share information. Anyone been had got any good school suggestions in this suburb, whatever. Um, And then also I've been sort of, informally coaching a lot of parents so my our pediatrician we've got a great relationship and she often connects people that she meets in her practice parents to come and meet me and we talk and we sort of try and find strategies and and ways that might suit the the stage that they're in only with neuro i mean with all kinds of neurodiversity or is it more yeah it's it's sort of i it's all of it it's it's i I sort of i mean not to i I think the niche is this the hidden what i call hidden conditions because it's this special nuance that your children look like they should fit in and they can't Mm -hmm. so that's sort of the niche that i'm that i'm working in and i through with another mum of mine who's now also on my podcast, um, we have developed a, a coaching program for working parents because working is hard enough when you're juggling kids, but when you've got these really unexpected unknowns that you have to deal with, then we've got some sort of specific things and our good friends at Grace Papers are helping us access employers who can help pay for those programs for their employees because we don't, I, I just don't, I can't see that it's a, something that people could really spend any money on um, personally because it's such an expensive process. So having. where can people access these resources? So, well, where the um, program through Grace Papers, we're still, we haven't launched it yet. So that's still early days. But there is, I've got a new social platform called Mighty through Mighty Networks, which is like a Facebook page, but I think it's a bit easier to use. So if you go to Takes a Village, not It Takes a Village, but takesavillage.com.au, you can connect into our online community where we've got just it's just really kind of kicking off now but we're starting more conversations about things like school managing siblings um you know managing the the shock of the diagnosis um other access to other um services that are maybe better designed but the idea of that is not for us to be pushing the content but for people to be able to come and share because there's actually lots of good things out there it's really hard to know about them Mm. so I just want to be people to be able to reach out and share and connect in the ways that work for them we've got a podcast as well so I've got a podcast which is kind of two-pronged one of them is with a young man who started a care agency for children with disabilities he's really passionate about advocacy and so we talk about the different services that are out there and the different work that he's doing to train young people to be support workers and carers what's that called it's called care now care now yeah and it's amazing because he's building this community of young people who um have and he gives them some training so they can come and um be babies what 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 we would have previously called babysitters because one of the actually where it began with takes a village was trying to find babysitters to help and the number of them walking out crying just not showing up again because it's pretty harsh you need people who kind of have had some training, some experience who can come in and tolerate. There's that word again. Mm. And that's when I connected with him and I was like, oh, my God, what you're doing is amazing because not only are you creating this resource, but you're educating people who otherwise wouldn't be in that world to understand more, to care more, to talk about it in a way that normalises it and to build that broader understanding. So um, he's doing that. And then my other – so um, we talk about – we've had done interviews with a whole lot of different community leaders and um, individuals 
um, with lived experience. And then I've got these two new mums as a sort of second co-host for the stream where we're really talking about our personal experiences and where we're at and things like school, dealing with a diagnosis, what do I do now, how do I manage those social situations, all of those things that you you don't almost realise, thankfully, when you first get the diagnosis, but it's it's coming. And what is that called, the, the second pod? So the um, Takes a Village is the organisation and the Village Lantern. So the, the Village, Village Lantern is to bring light and love to families living with children with hidden conditions. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, we'll put some links to that in the show notes. I guess I just had one other question. It's reverting back to where this conversation began. You've, you've resourced and spreading the word, the tolerance, the information and the love as a parent. What about you as an adult? We haven't talked about your working life now. Yeah. So I worked in corporate for a long time and I think I did that because I wanted to um, – earn enough money to be independent as a female. I think that was really important to me at the time, but on reflection, it really wasn't the best place for me with my now understood brain. So I left, I worked in like a corporate for about 16 years and in that very sort of structured environment and it was okay, I did okay. Like I probably, externally I did well enough, but I I don't think I even realised that it didn't really suit me. I now work for a startup, which is like perfect for someone with ADHD managed I have to say managed and treated and you know now I feel like it's using more as a strength because it allows me to find that mix between hands-on and strategic so you get the intellectual stimulation you get the satisfaction of being productive there's nothing it's all new you're building everything from scratch so it's really creative it's a very collaborative environment where you're kind of you know um, mucking in together and I work from home now so I've got a whole lot more flexibility around where I need to be and when I can work, which then, and also I came in very openly with the boss, my boss, who is a brilliant man. And I just told him my, my, my situation, if you want to hire me, this is what you get. And sometimes I have to pull myself out and I can't always plan it. And he's amazing. He's absolutely amazing. So I feel really grateful that I, the more that I've understood how I thrive and where I thrive and what I need, what I can tolerate, Um, or you know manage Um, it's been I'm so happy I'm so happy any suggestions for conversations that adults with ADHD might have to support them on their career journeys yeah I, I do I think that there is still not enough understanding out there to necessarily go out around telling everyone unless you feel comfortable and safe and you've sort of it's established that that's an okay thing to do but I think there's plenty that you can do um to communicate how you operate and what you do what you do really well and what you find harder because everyone has that diagnosis or not we can all learn from deeply understanding ourselves without shame or without um, thinking that that's something wrong with that it doesn't have to be a judgment about it but to be able to say to your boss I I'm, say I'm, a, I'm, I'm really a morning person I get all my stuff done so it's better if I can't if I don't have meetings say till 11 for example now you can't always adjust that but thinking about when you are at your best if maybe it's at the times of the day or if it's you know certain times of the year depending on what's going on with your your kids and what sort of work you're really good at so if you really struggle with lots of detail try not to have too much of your job where you're trying to do that because you will you won't do as well and then you'll be you'll beat yourself up so the good thing about getting a diagnosis is understanding those different components and how it affects you and then you can look at your life and go oh my no wonder I hate Thursdays because we're in that four-hour meeting and everyone's going through the minute detail now I understand and you can't always do something about that Mm. straight away but having that clarity and then making decisions about the next role or the next move or you know how you might try and shift things um, I think that applies to everyone. I yeah. do too. Is your medication yeah. the, now that's sort of um, stable and yes. you're not playing with that initially? Yep. Was that an up and down learning process? Um, not for me, but for, for medication completely changed my life. And that's the stimulant. I was already having an SSRI for my anxiety before that. But with my children, we have absolutely had to adjust and try and and I'm very determined that they have some agency in that. So if they don't feel well, we we listen to them and we try and adjust it. So it can be a bit of trial and error and it doesn't work for everyone. It really doesn't. And there are different options. So it does take a little bit of sticking with it. Um, And some people don't want to and that's absolutely fine. There's lifestyle things, sleep, 
how you eat, all that stuff that applies to all the humans. Mm-hmm. But for me, medication was a life changer because mm-hmm. I could finish things yeah. and I could stay on task and I felt so good. I was like, oh, there's the thing that I can do that everyone else could do that I thought I was a loser. You were school captain. Yeah. You, you told us that before, before we started yeah. recording. How did you get through a year 12 year in a leadership position in a fairly pressurised school environment? Mm. Well, I um, I really like to be busy. I really like to be challenged. And leadership is about other people. So that bit is not hard for me. I think that we are, to, to that point about which bits do you really thrive in, what do you just duck to water, know what those are. And I didn't know it necessarily. I think I was a bit surprised because I certainly wasn't the most academic. I wasn't the best at anything. <laughs> wasn't the best at sport or anything, but I was pretty good at most things. Uh, look, I, I'm over it now, but I feel like I could have done better in Year Twelve. Oh, <laughs> but now I know why. Oh, and that's overrated okay. anyway. Oh, look, <laughs> I actually did really well. It was fine, but it's more about the pressure, as you say, and the expectations. And I didn't know that I couldn't study for more than about half an hour. I would fall asleep. I would come home and fall asleep for ages, but cram, and I could cram, and it sort of worked out okay. But it was awful. It wasn't. It was not enjoyable. That the school trying to get through the year twelve bit, but all the other stuff I loved. I loved, you know, leading things, whatever. I can't even remember what we did now. But I think because that stuff wasn't hard for me, it was just the um, that sort of executive functioning, yeah. that ability to be very organised and. You know, you have a co-captain or a vice-captain who it so happens was very organised. And that's also the thing when you think about how you set up your life. You have someone around you who can fill those gaps. The yin-yang sort of thing, yeah. And it sounds like, you know, your level of self-awareness, self-acceptance now and playing to your strengths is... um, yeah, is very empowering for you. And we uh, thank you very much for sharing your life and your incredible insights with us today. We like to ask all of our guests a final question. Um, given your experience of life and all the colour across the spectrum that you see, who do you think is doing human well? Well, I told you before that I have been binging your podcast, <laughs> so I do know that this question was coming and I have been thinking about it quite a bit and I loved some of the responses and I'm going to choose a character who's not a, an actual person and he has been mentioned in your podcast before and that is Ted Lasso oh, <laughs> because yeah. I feel like if you choose a character, then actually what you're talking about are characteristics and that, that therefore any human who is living in those characteristics applies as the answer. And I love Ted Lasso because he carries his pain quite, I mean, when we're watching the character, we can see his suffering. He had a lot of deep suffering, but he came to everything with love. Every human he came across, it was level. Everyone was the same. He didn't have any, he didn't have a different approach to who he dealt with. So he was very, he took love to everyone he met. He's funny. I just think you have to have some humour. You have to be able to find a way to laugh even when you're hurting. And he's hopeful, you know, and he really wants to help others as much as he's suffering. He's still his first lead is, who needs me? What what else can I do? And I actually think that the more that you think less about yourself and more about what's going on around you, there's your, there's your doing human well because the people around you benefit, but so do you in terms of your experience. So Ted Lasso, I mean, I've never bought merch for anything in my life, but after that, I swear to God, I went and ordered Ted Lasso T-shirts online and I wore them around for a while. For the whole family? <laughs> no, just for me. Yeah. Thank you, Anna. Oh, I love it. <laughs> it really needs no response. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Human Cogs. We hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you. And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. well.